episode 420, Blaze It Up, <laughs> I'm your host, Zach Dennis, and I'm here with Michael O'Malley and Andrew Swafford. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about the television event of the year, a.k.a. HBO's The Rehearsal in Part 1, because That's right. we're very limited in our movie watching as we prepare for TIFF, so we figured we need to reckon with... Uh, with Nathan Fielder for a little while. And then part two, we're going to be kicking off our new series, our new concert movie series with 1959's Jazz on a Summer's Day. Which yeah. is super good, by the it's way. very good. Yeah. Concert films started off strong. They really did. Good genre. <laughs> well, let's, we've, we've rehearsed this uh, part one multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> I, we should have had a screen where like I had actors playing you and Michael. And that would be just, good. That would that be, be a little high effort. So I guess for those who are unfamiliar with Nathan Fielder. Um, <laughs> good luck. Yeah, good luck. He's a, he's a Canadian comedian. He's probably most well-known here in, or in America for um, his Comedy Central show, Nathan For You, where he played a uh, very good businessman with great grades from a reputable Canadian business school. Really good grades. Really good grades. Um, Not great. And, which ran for like five or six seasons? Uh, four. Four, yeah. Four. Um, we talked about it a few weeks ago. Andrew talked about Finding Francis, which was um, the finale for the show. His newest project, though, is on HBO, and I will try to my best to describe it, but it's kind of one of those you got to experience it type things. Absolutely. Um, you're, so it's, it's six episodes. The first episode kind of introduces you to the concept. Um, Nathan Fielder is creating intricate scenarios for people to um, act out. So the first person he meets needs to tell um, a friend of his a secret that he's been holding on to. And so in order to prepare for that, uh, Nathan Fielder has this whole, he's, he's created a set of the bar they're going to go to, has hired actors to play different people as well as the friend. Which and the construction of the bar it was more expensive than the price of the actual bar. Because <laughs> they make it one-to-one, -one <laughs> simply with like certain balloons that hang in certain corners. <laughs> so, um, Working taps. But it, it really takes off the second through sixth episodes are all interlinked together for 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 the most part. But for those who are unfamiliar with it, it's it's pretty much acting out scenarios that people are anxious to get into. Um, so yeah, it it just finished up. Um, I'm gonna toss it over to you all. What how how are you processing the rehearsal? It's a lot to process. It's a lot to process. Um, <laughs> it's I've one been of processing those... it a lot. Um, Sorry, go ahead, Michael. I was just going to say, it's one of these shows that very rarely comes along where with every subsequent episode, you don't know what's going to happen in the next episode. And it's just yeah. like, that's such a beautiful feeling to get out of a TV show. Like some of my very favorite shows had stretches where that was the case. Like maybe like a stretch of Mad Men or a stretch of Lost or something like that would have that sort of feeling where you're like, mm -hmm. I have no clue what's going to happen next, but I'm in for it because... Uh, this has been great so far. And this is maybe the only show I've ever seen where the entire show is every episode is like a rug pull and you're not sure where mm -hmm. it's going. And each episode is layering on the one that came previous to it. Um, yeah. So that was my initial thought, like watching it is it was like almost like a, a cliffhanger type show. Cause you're like, I have no clue what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to see what's going to happen next. No, I feel like, um, people are used to hearing shows pitched as like, you'll never know what's coming next. Right. Because uh, cliffhangers are so common in the world of television. Like it's kind of manipulative that way, but this is like cliffhangery in a fundamentally different way that is hard to describe. Like it's not just, I don't know what these characters are going to do next week. It's more like, I don't know what show this is going to be next week. Like it keeps kind of morphing and, and like unfolding and revealing itself to you um like you're right zach that the first episode is sort of like a proof of concept of what this whole thing is going to be but then the next episode seems for a very long time like it's just going to be another loop of that and it's going to be a loop every episode like nathan for you was but then it like ends up bleeding into the third episode and then third episode is like 
juggling two loops and then it kind of create becomes this like bigger grander crazier thing um and like i haven't had this feeling watching a tv show like being feeling so immersed and sucked into its world um since twin peaks the return came out like when you just called twin peaks the return a tv show in a manner of speaking Uh, uh, well like i think this is similar to twin peaks the return in that it feels like this big unified piece right for sure Um, for sure like a thing that i i have said many times about twin peaks the return is it feels like it's structured like mulholland drive and it's like if you took mulholland drive and you stretched it to 18 hours right the first hour of of that version of mulholland drive is going to be a totally different thing than what you're going to get to later right um and this this feels like a similar thing to me. Like it's one big like piece, like this sculpture of television <laughs> that Nathan Fielder has made. Um, and like I also want to get into like the specifics of it um, and kind of like the the weird philosophical stuff too. But um, <laughs> Zach, what are your general impressions of this thing? I loved it. Uh, I, I was a big fan of Nathan for you before this. So like whenever they announced that he was doing something with HBO, I was like, I'm, I'm signed up. Good. Yeah. This one was, I mean, you mentioned that you didn't know what you were going to get week to week in terms of what the show was. I was also going, I don't know. To me, it was just like this fascinating experiment and, and just kind of a proof of concept into how, and this was Nathan for you to, to a degree also, but how weird and strange people are. Absolutely. You know, Nathan like, Fielder has like an unparalleled ability to find just the most bizarre, like people with the most bizarre fixations out there. Like I, and it's, and you know, you can get into, I'm, I'm sure we can talk about it. You, there's, there was this kind of whole internet debate after like the second or third episode of people going, is he like a sociopath? Is this, is he being mean to these people? Mm. And like, to a degree, you're like, maybe he is kind of, you know, exploiting them for, for stuff. But at the same time, you have this whole dichotomy between their loving being exploited. <laughs> and yeah. And they're, they're, also, they're like eagerness to be exploited. Like, please put me on TV. Which, which just shows you like that strange line between you kind of want to go, you know, oh, well, don't exploit people. Don't, you know, don't use their their strangeness or their, their personalities for, for, for gain. But you're like, he's not doing that. They're doing that for, I mean, they're doing that for themselves. I keep sending Andrew TikToks that people post from Cameo <laughs> of characters from this show that people will just get a Cameo from because yeah. they're still getting they're like still high on that exposure. It's it's just the most insane social project I've ever seen. Like he's also them. like trick tricking some of them into basically being offered therapy. Like the yeah. show is therapy for them. Like tell me what you're anxious about. Tell me what's stressing you out. Let's like role play that a little bit. And see how you can process it emotionally in the moment. Like in the third episode, when like the the guy just like breaks down sobbing in the middle of his conversation with Nathan's actor, and then like cuts all ties and never sees Nathan again. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, that's what that guy needed. That's why he signed up for this, <laughs> right? Well, and then also, I think that 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 premise of like we're exploring something that is going to make you anxious yeah. has a way of like allowing those people who are like you know have these sort of like interesting undercurrents to them like just teasing Mm -hmm. that out like one of the main recurring characters is this woman who it turns out is basically like a fundamentalist christian yeah um and i was waiting for it to become a QAnon thing the whole show and it did not i'm sure she is in real life like it seems like not unlikely that she is and perhaps if she were her involvement in the show went a little longer we would have gotten that but like it's one of these things by being put in this environment, you get little hints of like, wait, what's this? What did she just say? And then like, it'll come <laughs> back up. Uh, and I think Nathan Fielder is this amazing conduit for that because he is, I think intentionally to some degree, but maybe like naturally also like a very like deadpan. Oh, uh, it's, like, it's natural. Flat, I think flat, he, it's natural, but also like, I mean, he knows how to play with it. He knows how to like yeah. let, his reaction be underplayed so that that person will double down on the thing that they just said um like there's a bit in which um they discuss celebrating halloween and the fundamentalist christian is like yeah it's a satanist holiday and nathan's like oh really and (laughs) like and then she like elaborates more line and like 
it's just like an amazing a bit of like interview craft like basically because it you know if i were there i would react in a particular way that probably wouldn't make the conversation uh there's a scene where a guy like says an anti-semitic does he say a slur or just like um use an anti-semitic trope around him and like nathan wants to jump in and like you know chew the guy out uh, or, or you know at, at least like try to change his mind or something but he doesn't he like you see him like doing the mental calculus in his head of like what needs to happen here for me to kind of get my ideal results like with this dude right and just like pulling back and not doing that it's like a very strange um it's almost like a reversal like the Kaveh Zahidi like radical honesty thing um or he's just kind of like radical, I don't know, um, willingness to hear other people's true selves or something. Like he also is kind of a, a socially awkward, socially anxious dude. And I think like he connects with a lot of these people on, well, on a weird le- wavelength. Well, it shows you the, the art of a good interview because mm-hmm. you, know, you never, when the person says the crazy thing, you don't go, what the hell are you talking about? Right. You, you want to know more. Yeah. Yeah. Because- because then you get you can kind of figure out their line of thinking and go that path. And that's just like he does. He's able to interrogate them in a way that also, again, like that's why I don't think he's he's doing it meanly. He's just kind of, go, you know, I think people reacted that way because they they don't have that curiosity or, or that interview skill. And they're kind mm-hmm. of going, well, I would just jump on them and say they're wrong. And you're like, yeah, I mean, they're wrong. He Nathan knows that too, but yeah, but that's not the point of the show is to shame these people. It's, it's, it's more to let them shame themselves almost to a degree because yeah, we're going to do it naturally. You don't need to prompt them on anything. Um, but then it also turns on Nathan because you have, like yeah, this, <laughs> you have, because at one point the fundamentalist Christian woman leaves and it's just him following through with the scenario. And I think honestly, one of the most gripping moments of television for me recently was when the actor of the fundamentalist Christian woman is yelling at him and just telling him how, Oh my God. How yeah. he's unable to love people and be, you know, and can't connect with people. <laughs> right. Cause he's trying to rehearse what would have been a scenario in which she wouldn't have ended up like leaving the show and like not, you know, she would have finished her uh, rehearsal, quote unquote, and he can't find a scenario in which that will work because the premise of the show is something that like wouldn't have worked for the person long term. Yeah, there's also a moment in I don't remember if it's in Finding Francis. No, it's in the first episode of this show, um, where he's in the pool with the the guy who needs to like you know confess about his graduate degree or whatever, and Nathan mentions that he had been through a divorce, but he also had choreographed an actor to like swim between himself and the other guy at that exact <laughs> moment. So he doesn't have to go into the details of it. And like, there's a really good profile of Nathan Fielder in um, New York magazine, I think um, where he talks about that being like one of the impetuses of the show of like um, his experience with therapy post divorce. And in a way he's kind of um giving himself therapy for that or like imagining this alternate future um, in this simulation he has crafted for other people ostensibly, but actually just for himself um, by the end of the movie or the end of the show. Yeah. And I I feel like um, it also just shows that people, you know, this concept of, okay, you have to go and do this very important thing, you know, in two weeks, but you're going to be able to practice it over yeah. and over and over again. I think it's very appealing to people. They're like, oh yeah, like that's, you know, if I was doing a job interview or I had yeah. to, you know, talk to somebody and break up or just anything, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. But then you like, as the show goes along, you also see that I think on the, on the surface people like that, but in reality, it's almost just, and that's why I go back to the egotism. It's, it's almost just the, the attention that draw that drives them throughout a lot of the show, like just the mm-hmm. attention that they're given. And it just shows how people, people are just so starved to like get their stuff out constantly. And then that's yeah. and when I, when I kind of clicked with that, I was like, this is, this is a very sad show now because it's just yeah. a bunch of really like sad people who, you know, are crazy and some of them crazy and some of them, you know, not great, 
uh, but now I still hold out the Scion guy is fantastic. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah. but I mean, it's it, it's just, they're just kind of like sad, lonely people who like just have the, you know, I don't know. They just want to like get their things out. Well, I think too, like the last episode centers on uh, child a, a child actor um, mm-hmm. and who had been in the show like as part of one of the rehearsals and. I think like the one of the interesting things that comes out of that um, is that the child actor is young enough that he ends up having trouble differentiating between like what the acting part of the his relationship with Nathan Fielder is and what his real relationship with Nathan Fielder is, um, and it's kind of like this interesting commentary on um, like the premise of the show itself because like the premise of the show is to allow people to rehearse something for real life and so that involves like a sort of suspension of disbelief yeah or like there should be a suspension of disbelief. you have to believe that the simulation to a certain extent in order to have like an emotionally authentic response to it right but the people who end up being in the show um you know by virtue of being adults and by virtue of being in some ways savvy about themselves or savvy about like what they're trying to promote about themselves like that that sort of like sincerity is kind of hard to uh exist it, it it can't really exist within the show and like andrew you already mentioned that one dude who like had like a real genuine moment of breakthrough and then left the show yeah um, and Nathan so says for some people the simulation is enough or the rehearsal is enough is what he says right exactly yeah. and and so like the the kid at the end of the show is someone who had bought into like the rehearsal and like had emotionally connected within the rehearsal and then that caused all sorts of weird issues like going outside of the rehearsal and so there's something Mm -hmm. about like to survive within the rehearsal like maybe not survive but like in order to like engage the rehearsal on the terms the rehearsal is asking you to engage with it in like face these weird unhealthy psychological dimensions of it but then the rehearsal doesn't really serve its purpose if you don't engage it on its right like terms and it's like a really it's, it's just a fascinating experiment because of a lot of reasons but because of that dynamic where you know how much do the participants have to get invested in what is happening and is it good for them to get invested in what's happening like nathan himself i mean the show is kind of like interrogating the ethics of its own invention like should should this thing exist and i wonder if in the same way that nathan for you is sort of spoofing and critiquing certain genres of reality television like um the the business self-help show or like the home flipper show or the the like bachelor style show or whatever um if this is also kind of doing a similar thing with you know reality television that that is a little bit more like slice of life theoretically um and just kind of questioning the ethics of that it also kind of calls into question the ethics of like child actors in general (laughs) like their their ability to just differentiate real life from a simulated reality in in film um is like real fuzzy <laughs> according to this show well it's, yeah. and it, it creates this complicated situation of like like who's at fault here is it nathan for creating the show and putting them in that scenario or is it the mother's fault for signing the kid yeah up the yeah parents? like hollywood parents hollywood people yeah. um for sure um no i don't know like it's 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 truly I'm surprised that they renewed it for a second season. I don't. Yeah. I don't know how it could have a second season. I don't know either, and it's just I don't know how HBO is like this seems profitable. <laughs> I kind of wish it didn't have a second season, and Nathan could just do a different thing, like another little mini series like this. That's kind of high concept and, and unique. Yeah. Well, at, the same, at the same time, I mean, this one changed and, and moved so much. Who knows if it'll even be like the same thing? Yeah, that's true. As long as they can go to the alligator lounge. <laughs> <laughs> um, one thing that we have not talked about that I think is worth bringing up is the way the show sort of invites the audience to um, question the authenticity of what you are seeing in any given moment. Like it is a reality show about people having a hard time differentiating the re- reality from the simulation or like the ways in which those things blur together. But that is also true for the viewer. Like we think we are watching a depiction of reality, but there are moments when the show kind of winks at us and lets us know like, no, this is a construction too. Like we are, we have put together in the editing room, 
a like commercially satisfying product here. Um, and like the big moment of that is at the end of uh, the first episode when Nathan confesses uh, to this guy, he has his own confession that like not only while he was helping the dude confess about the graduate degree thing, he also like intentionally made the dude accidentally cheat <laughs> on trivia, uh, which is like a thing that that this guy holds very, very dear, like his and his trivia integrity. <laughs> Can I just say though that the way he he like infiltrates the mind is the funniest thing. Oh it's my amazing. god, millionaire! <laughs> like I loved it so much. Yeah, but then you get a response from this guy where the guy is chewing Nathan out, and it feels like such a cathartic, like you know, satisfying ending to this episode. Um, until you notice that it is not actually the guy chewing him out; it's the actor that he's got to play the guy from the beginning of the show. <laughs> And so, like, they weren't rehearsing anything there. That was just, uh, I mean, maybe Nathan was rehearsing uh, making that confession. I don't know. But there's no reason to put it in the show other than to make you question um, the validity of what you're seeing at any given Or moment. if the rehearsal was a more interesting outcome than whatever happened when you really told the guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, no, I think at the, at the core of it, the show is always about, like, not only the path that they take, but also the path that could happen. And like watching yeah. those kind of constantly intersect with one another is just like, that's pro- to me, that was the most fascinating aspect of the show. Another what, thing about like increasingly, the, uh, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Go, I was just going to say increasingly, like as the show goes on, he's not just rehearsing stuff, but replaying stuff. Like we already mentioned, yeah. like after the fact of the woman leaving the show, he rehearses a bunch. Like could that, could that scenario have gone differently? Which is, not really the spirit of the show. The spirit of the show is theoretically practice what is in the future, yeah. but then he increasingly uses it to reflect back on what has happened, um, which kind of raises the question of like how much of what we see. I mean, there's a certain element of what we know that what we see on camera like happened because like these are real people who have done like interviews outside of you know the show and stuff like that. But like, not everybody, and it's not always clear you know, whether or not like a given like person or a given thing that happens in the show could have been like orchestrated by like an actor that Nathan paid to do something or something like that, because the show shows a clear pattern of behavior of Nathan doing things like that. There is an episode that like directly involves him kind of working with an actor to like find a better storyline for his character. Right. And that, that episode ends with like the most obviously fictional thing in the whole uh, series. If you can remember the kid on the playground, that moment. Oh, that's, um, that's amazing. It's so I, good. I saw, I saw somebody sharing it on Facebook as like an inspirational, like, Oh my gosh, they oh grew my up God. so fast. I'm like, that's not what it's about. <laughs> it's like Nathan Fielder has like found a way to construct this like, weird uh frankenstein monster version of boyhood uh, <laughs> like boyhood by alice kiristami uh, where we're like constantly questioning the nature of reality uh so good but what i was going to say in response to to your thing zach about like the branching paths of the show um this is also a thing in the new yorker profile which or new york magazine sorry which people should go read it's great he talks about how part of the impetus of the show was that he would actually draft up those like huge dialogue trees whenever he was um, preparing for Nathan for you, because like he had, he, he knew that he was p- uh, pitching a ridiculous concept to his audience. And so he had to prepare for like all the possible negative responses. And like, what is my response to that? What is my response to that follow-up? What is my response to that follow-up? And like, just like memorizing these huge trees which also is part of him like being kind of a socially anxious, like nervous dude who just like wants, you know, a, a, a template to look off of. Uh, this is going to sound like a, oh, sorry, Andrew. No, go ahead. I was going to say, this is going to sound like a, like a red herring, but like, I don't know if either of you guys watched the recent video that Jacob Geller on YouTube put up about um, therapy no. apps. I've been wanting to watch it. It's pretty interesting. And it's about like, basically like, um, how people like since the beginning of computers being able to have like chats with people uh, have tried to use that to create therapy. Mm. And um, like, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with like the Eliza chat thing, which is like, you know, the first instance uh, of like 
someone creating a program where you can chat with it and it will respond to you. Uh, it's really rudimentary how it does it, but like people would find like people would make um, uh, connections with the computer, uh, even this like really rudimentary thing that was more or less just parroting back what you said to it. Mm -hmm. um, and it eventually gets to like the video talks about how these modern apps um, kind of end up doing the same thing. And a lot of times it, what people have found that, especially when it comes to like cognitive behavioral therapy and stuff like that, that really more puts the emphasis on the actions and reflections of the uh, person, you know, who is receiving the therapy mm -hmm. um, rather than like, you know, a therapist who makes insights or something like that. Um, right. What people have found is that there is like a degree of therapeutic value in like simply um, having uh, a uh, like a, a, an entity on the other side that you talk to and then that mm -hmm. causes you to have reflection and uh, they talk about how um, crisis hotlines like mental health crisis mm -hmm. hotlines and that sort of thing are not actually like you know there's not really trained therapists on the other side for the most part uh, what it is is people who have big dialogue trees that they're leading you through mm. um, I didn't know that. giving you aid uh, through that and that there is like you know as like on a certain level it is kind of like depressing and and mechanized to like understand that that's what's happening like in these apps or computer like mm -hmm. these dialogue trees do like produce genuine like human response out of them yeah. even though like the actual mechanism leading you through those is uh you know very scripted and i, th I think that that's an interesting like uh uh, dovetail with this show. Yeah, like an, an acknowledgement that like there is value to those like inauthentic but still like emotionally significant um, interactions between people. Well, and like did the rehearsals accomplish what they needed to accomplish or were they just kind of there to let somebody act out for a a period of time you know like mm -hmm. you know like like the it first seems time, like they're uh, they accomplish what they're trying to accomplish in a couple cases i don't know about all that one dude realized he wasn't ready for kids so mm. <laughs> well he was driving a sign at 100 so. <laughs> that dude is not ready for kids uh no. that guy by the way people have maybe seen this make the rounds on twitter i don't know how how uh, big this got but um he did an interview with um who is the who it was is the nice, vice writer um uh yeah. gita jackson he, yeah. he did an interview with gita jackson um about like because he claimed that he was misrepresented in the show and like it's just an article of him explaining what was actually true which is way fucking crazier than what <laughs> in the show. this guy is completely unhinged that that, dude, that was the funniest dude. That he dude truly thinks that made him look better too. He when when he went back to his apartment and was still spouting off the number shit, and his roommate was just oh like, my what, God. "What is up with these numbers?" <laughs> <laughs> I remember thinking that that must have been kind of like a staged moment at the time, like the the argument between that guy and his roommate, was just like so over the top. It's like I'm watching a John Cassavetes movie all of a sudden, <laughs> but then like by the end of the episode and reading about this guy, like. Oh yeah, that's totally how I would act if I was this guy's roommate too. <laughs> that has like also one of the best like Nathan Fielder like underreacting to a situation. Yeah, like it's been this huge like like argument, and then Nathan and uh, the guy are like walking out of the apartment. And Nathan's just like, so "What was that all about?" <laughs> <laughs> and also the guy the the guy t saying that he's high. And then Nathan's like, are you sure you're okay to drive? And like clearly, guy is not okay to drive. He's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'm good. I drive high all the time." <laughs> and it's like okay i guess i will get in the car with this maniac for the sake of the show <laughs> that was up there with the two brothers who he met who talked about how they had three ways to go oh my god i oh forgot god. about that wait wasn't that's that not in the rehearsal but that's a great one yeah <laughs> um, man well i think i think it's safe to say unless you got you all have any other thoughts that you should Get yourself on HBO or HBO Max and watch the rehearsal. It's oh, six absolutely. episodes. You should. It's six episodes. None of them are even close to an hour long. Like it's mm -hmm. most of them are like thirty minutes. So it's doable. The first one I think is forty five, but I mean that's not bad. Yeah, the whole show is like less than five hours. It's got to be. 
you and know. they're so good. Like you will want. So good. I, I I enjoyed the weekly drip of mm. the show, but after every episode, I did immediately want to watch the second one, which is not rare. That is kind of rare for me. I'm not like a binge watcher. Mm. I would be curious though. Maybe this kind of goes into the TV or movie question. Mm-hmm. I think it's perfect as a dripped out TV show. I don't. I would be interested to watch it in a binge model. I I would love to see it in a theater. I think that would be awesome. Yeah, I would be curious. Like you mentioned Kava Zahidi earlier, and the show yeah. about the show was a web series that I guess theoretically was dripped out over the course of months, but I watched mm-hmm. it all like, you know, it's like an hour 45 or something. I watched that like back to back, and it At definitely has cinema, a right? quality. Of, Did you go to right? public cinema to see it? No, no, no. This is on... Oh. Um, it was online. I, I missed the I missed the public cinema showing of it. Yeah. But, but like I imagine the process of like every few weeks one of these drops, like in the versus like watching it as like more or less a feature film, like that fundamentally changes what it feels like. And mm-hmm. I'm curious if Nathan not Nathan for you, the rehearsal is like that. Yeah. All right. Well we're gonna take a quick break and then we're going to go and hang out in Rhode Island listen to some jazz. <laughs> oh, yeah. Just where vibing. The cool, where all the cool people are after this. The city is yours. Up the lazy river where the old bill run. Up the lazy river with the noonday sun Lingering in the shade Of a kind of tree Don't wait troubles Dream a dream of me Dream a dream of me yes. Up the lazy river Where the robin song is Two bright lights As we stroll along and we are back with part two of episode 420 blaze it of cemetery (laughs) (laughs) episode we're gonna be kicking off our uh concert movie series with 1989's jazz on a summer's day which honestly is a good 420 this is a good 420 movie if that's you know jazz is like the original getting high music it's also nice to watch in the middle of a day i would say Good breezy afternoon sit. Um, movie directed by Bart Stern and Aram uh, Avakian, from a script by Albert Dianable and Arnold uh, Pearl. Film contains performances by Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, uh, Chuck Berry, Chico Hamilton, Mahalia Jackson, and Anita O'Day, but not Miles Davis and John Coltrane, <laughs> who also played at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival. Exactly. What a loss. Um, Jazz on a Summer's Day was shot at the 1958 Newport Jazz Festival, which was held over the 4th of July weekend that year. The concert was produced by George Wayne. Uh, The film marked the only feature for producer-director Bert Stern, who was a commercial advertising and magazine photographer. According to a February 1960 New York Times article, Stern was invited by the Newport Film Festival's founder, Louis Louis Lauriard, to shoot there. Sources vary as the original... As to the original footage length, cost, and time spent editing. Man, I really want to know the original footage length. Like yeah. all the all the footage that is not in the concerts, like that seems like he was just kind of observing people for days. Uh, it had to have been. Yeah. From the next. <laughs> the New York Times article states that shooting from a script Stern procured 130,000 feet of film over six days, which took six months to edit. Time reported in May 1960, the film was shot in four days and cost $210,000. Stern said that he wanted to bring jazz out of the cellars and into the sunlight. Stern's biggest cinematic influence, he said, were not uh, so much other documentaries as were the the great English cinematic colorists Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, whose The Red Shoes had made an indelible impression on the teenage Stern. Jazz on a Summer's Day has been called a, quote, snapshot of a day in Eisenhower's America, uh, though that designation suggests artlessness. Another critic compared the film to Robert Frank's Americans, an influential uh, photographic suite of life in the U.S. in the 1950s. 
New York Times 1959 said, scenically and sonically, jazz on a summer's day is great, but in the cinematic area, it is inconsistent and thin. The shots, mm. while entertaining, mm. do not add up to much. Some series, indeed, are pretentious and represent little more than a photographer's win. A better title for this picture, more descriptive of it at least, might be Jazz on a Summer Photographer, Jazz on a Photographer's Field Day, or Lensing the Newport Mob. Dang. <laughs> <laughs> Variety in 1959 said outstanding feature-length documentary centered around the Newport Jazz Festival. It's a document of the medium spanning most of the jazz styles and including a rich selection of top performers and material. It's Americana and a document of its time as well via observation of audiences and the life surrounding the Newport event, not least the neatly integrated footage concerning the American Cup yacht races. So on that note, Mm -hmm. Talk about lensing the Newport mom. <laughs> um, what did you all make of jazz on a summer's day? It rocked, but I it's guess really good. it jazzed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's this. The, we we put this one in there because it was supposed to kind of be the um, the you know the first the first quote unquote concert film. Mm. Um, you know, it seems like it. It definitely does like you know set the groundwork for a lot of similar ones maybe not you know it doesn't have as much yeah. um talking heads or like interaction you know people interacting with the filmmakers as you know like gimme shelter something we talked about um mm -hmm. previously but it definitely does like lay the groundwork on how to like put together a series of performances and like create that kind of concert mm -hmm. feeling that i feel like we'll see throughout the rest of the series yeah, it's really interesting to think about as like an early concert film because there's so much about the genre that is sort of set now. Um, like nowadays when you watch a concert film, it's usually like one performance, one night, one artist, and you're like seeing the whole set. And this is not that. And it's not even just like a compilation of artists either. It's like this documentary about this event or about this place. You know, I was reminded of some of the stuff that we, the, the stuff we did in, um, the documentary series many many years ago like um man with a movie camera or um uh, apropos denise you know mm -hmm. that kind of thing it's just like finding interesting ways of capturing the the energy of this place at this particular time um it really does like capture a very particular energy that I love. the energy of going to a festival which you talked about in your um in your review on letterboxd michael yeah because it just shows all the I don't even know if these crowd shots, like the audience reactions were happening at the moment of the the performances as they're juxtaposed, but it's just kind of amazing. Like there's some people who are like really into it. There's some people who are just eating. Yeah. There's some people who like kind of look bored, like, or are just <laughs> kind of like silently watching. Like, it's really funny that when it cuts to the audience, you never know what that audience is going to be doing because right. it, it's such this weird spectrum of like how people react for live music. Yeah, how how to show the audience is, I think a uh, a recurring like question in concert films. From what I've seen, like I think in general the convention of the genre is like when you show the audience, the audience is hype as fuck. Like they are so happy to be there as a way of kind of encouraging the viewer to also like be so happy to be there. Um, but there's also like we're going to talk about um, is it next week or no? It's two weeks from now. We're going to do stop making sense. Like that movie intentionally withholds any shots of the audience until like the very, very end to make you, the viewer, feel like you are in the audience. But like here, it's more like you are this person kind of wandering from stage to stage um, on, on the day of this festival where you're seeing lots of different types of things, um, which like it, it made me excited about going to TIFF. And by the time this this uh, episode comes out, me and Zach are going to be at TIFF. Um, we'll be but like it it really captures that feeling like whether it's a movie festival or music festival or whatever, like going to big ears in Knoxville feels kind of the same. Just, just kind of like going where your ear takes you and uh, um, kind of having a, a very, I don't know, um, relaxed day in many cases, right? There, there's a stretch in the middle of this where people are just kind of like drinking and walking around the shoreline and like playing around with each other and like, it's just such a vibe. Like th those kind of days at like a film festival or music festival are the best. 
Well, yeah. and also including the like Zach mentioned the yacht race, something that mm-hmm. like is unrelated to the festival going on parallel to it, and it's yeah. just like, oh yeah, there's this thing going on too. And like when you're in a big city like Toronto, or even in a smaller city like Knoxville, there for like a festival, there's the festival which you're keyed into, but then there's other stuff going on parallel to you. Right. And this movie manages to capture that as well, which is cool. Yeah, you're in a city that is like kind of doing its own thing on top of all that too. Well, and I love, by the way, the the shot, the sequences where there's intercut between the the yacht racing and the jazz. Um, like some of the the aerial photography and like the choices of angles and editing are like really really work uh, with the I don't know the the highs and lows of those performances. Yeah, it definitely understands like how to rhythmically edit along with it so that you like yeah. you feel like the mute music is like um carrying like the whole atmosphere around everything this is before music videos too like that was not a thing yeah and so yeah it feels very um very prescient in that realm you know going back to the point about like being at a festival you know one of the things also especially if you have multiple stages is just kind of wandering around like happening upon like a band or a performer that you had never heard of you know and like kind of just having that sense of discovery which i feel like is kind of the point of most festivals and so i'd be curious i would i would wonder like because you know like stern uh said that he was like trying to bring jazz out of the cellars and I'm, i'm i'm kind of like i'm sure for a lot of people um if they weren't like in New York or Chicago or something like that, like they weren't engaging with, um, they weren't seeing like jazz in, in different clubs. Yeah. And, like that. and so I would wonder how, you know, modern or not contemporary audiences in 1959 would have reacted seeing Louis Armstrong or, um, or, you know, Chico Hamilton or, you know, just any of these, these performers yeah, possibly for the first time, because they aren't going to like Greenwich village or something. Yeah. That's something interesting about the movie too because like i was reading online i was looking up like reviews on this and there's like some criticisms of the film that it's like a whitewashed or gentrified version of jazz which i think is maybe like a fair critique in the sense of like what is the context in which like these artists would normally be performing and like mm-hmm. obviously like a the big, audiences are almost entirely and the, yeah the audiences too and i don't know if that's like a uh the the filmmakers themselves like kind of editing to represent the festival in that way or if that actually is what the festival looks like but you know um you know up until this point you know i don't know this is maybe the tipping point in american history when jazz stops being the dangerous music uh, (laughs) like is on the scene now but like for a long time you know rock and roll is kind of like or not rock and roll uh uh jazz was kind of like a dangerous um yeah and seditious and that sort of thing and like basically from the the 20s to this point right and and so this this movie doesn't present it that way at all like it presents Mm -hmm. jazz i think in a way that is like fairly consistent with how probably most people nowadays would encounter jazz which is that it's kind of very uh technically impressive but ultimately Mm -hmm. leisurely music um Mm. and I think that that's interesting because I don't know that that was how jazz was perceived at the time. Um, maybe that's not the case. Maybe it was, per- maybe it was already accumulating this as like, uh, like hard bop and post bop became to be, you know, overtaking swing and all that sort of stuff, you know? Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I haven't listened to nearly as much jazz from this era as I have from like sixties and seventies. Right. But my impression is that, it is kind of like cleaner and more um, like easy listening uh, largely than, than where it ended up going. Oh, I mean, yeah, definitely than where it ended up going. But I mean, like for a while, like swing music, I mean, that's like pop music and, and jazz in the 1950s takes like a turn where it becomes increasingly complex yeah. um, and ceases to become pop music. Uh, and it, it still like has a lot of legs commercially, but in terms of like, what people are looking for like it's not really melody anymore you get like like for Mm -hmm. instance like even though miles davis wasn't featured here like you know what miles davis starts doing in like the 1950s is not swing jazz it's not even melodic jazz very much like he has melodies but a lot of it is modal Mm -hmm. in the sense of like playing around with scales and that sort of stuff um absolutely and uh the jazz that we see here kind of like spans that right you've got someone like louis armstrong um who is very much like of the kind of uh, 
like jazz's commercial peak style um, yeah you know that he's making pop he's, music with with jazz right. he's amazing like he's an amazing yeah. performer but then you've also got like chico hamilton's band uh which is playing something like much more um out there is that the one with the where we're mostly focusing on the drums yeah yeah that was insane that was some of the best stuff in the in the doc and that performance was was incredible because you know i've i've heard that music or the this piece a gazillion times i think uh uh paul thomas anderson just used it really well in licorice pizza oh Um, man maybe i I didn't know that i'd recognize it was it. it was really it was really impressive to see them just the flute like the the solo flute performance within it because i'm just like you don't see that anymore we need more flute, and it's such lizzo's a, out there representing <laughs> yeah but it's such a it's it, it's such a like just kind of um soft but at the same time just mesmerizing performance because it doesn't mm-hmm. have like the it doesn't have the 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 intensity or like the immediate grab that something like a still you know a trumpet player or a saxophone has there's nothing blaring coolness to it yeah um that i just i I, like i was just really impressed with that um were there any for you all i I really like that performance was there any performances that really stood out to y'all man so many of them honestly um they're all really good i love the the first one um and and like not only the music of it but the way that the cinematographer and the directors decided to film it like it's one continuous shot of one person in the band but i think there are three people in the band it's like a saxophone player a bass player and a guitar player who i think is jim hall yeah jim hall is really um is really good i've I've heard some of his other stuff as well um but you're just looking at like a profile view of the saxophone player and like just the choice to only show you one performer, like fundamentally changes the way that you listen to the music too, because like, because you're seeing the way their body is moving, you're kind of like more keyed into what the instrument is doing at that moment in, in the song, like your, your attention is kind of, you're almost ignoring the other instruments and like just kind of learning uh, or experiencing what this one is doing um and i feel like there's a lot of moments in the film where it like it is it is shifting what you're looking at because it wants to shift like what you're listening for as well yeah that the next performer after the first one i think is thelonious monk it is um, yeah who has like a trio and it does that too you know where like mm-hmm. you, you get like the kind of typical jazz thing where different people solo and you know you'll you'll focus in on the different people and um I thought that was really cool. Um, there's mm-hmm. also a few performers who are, um, uh, you know, like kind of the stars. Like, of course, like Louis Armstrong, and and uh, he he mostly gets the attention, and that's like that makes a lot of sense. Um, mm-hmm. Mahalia Jackson as well, like who ends it, uh, is just kind of, you know, just a, a real like you just a gravitational force, right? You just like, mm-hmm. can't can't look away because. Uh, of like the way in which he's performing and i will i'll say um it's kind of interesting i mean this is a jazz festival but i i think like at least as the um movie frames it there's a sort of like pan black american music thing being mm-hmm. captured here too because you have like the gospel that this ends with yeah right. chuck berry as a rock musician you know uh showing up at one point too and i, I think that's like another interesting thing is the diversity of um, musicians per, like seen and the ways in which they don't all, I don't know if Chuck Berry feels like he's in, in tune with everybody else, but like, I think all the other musicians, they feel there's a sort of synergy among them. Yeah. Uh, that I think is really interesting, even though they're playing like very different kinds of music at times, uh, you know, even am- under the umbrella of jazz. Um, but I like that, like just the kind of cumulative effect of seeing these different performances and each one is like showing a different facet of mm. like, this is part of the spectrum of music that, you know, is, is kind of like has a shared like cultural identity, I think. And there's sometimes this thing that like, I don't know, people do like, especially like maybe in like seven, like referring to musicians, seventies prior um that 
uh, you know, when, when jazz was maybe more integrated with like the, the conversation around pop and soul and that sort of stuff. But like, mm -hmm. sometimes like I've heard older white people do this and like, this is, I think irritating to me on some level, but they'll refer to people as jazz musicians who aren't like solely jazz musicians. Like I remember talking to this one older person mm -hmm. who kept referring to Stevie Wonder as a jazz musician, which what? Was my mind. <laughs> like I, I I was like Stevie Wonder is not a jazz musician. However, if you go back and listen to Stevie Wonder's music, like it is so inflected with jazz. Um mm -hmm. I would never call him a jazz musician exclusively, but like he is in conversation with jazz. And I think that when you see some of these performers who are kind of outside of like what we would consider like the boundaries of jazz music, like uh Chuck Berry or or um the kind of like gospel uh singers that you get every once in a while here. I think there is an interesting element though where you see like the inflections of jazz being represented in these different genres that I think is cool. Uh, I also, and this documentary does well, I think. Do you know about when the term rock and roll kind of became a household term? I, I do not know. Uh, however, I think it was before this because this isn't one of like the really early um, rock songs like has the word rock in it. Well, the reason I, I ask is because somebody performs either that song or a song that's very similar to it, where the lyrics are like, we're going to rock, we're going to rock, we're going to roll, we're going to roll, right? Like, mm -hmm. And it feels like if you're still in an era where like that is like kind of a novelty way to like novelty lyricism, like we're not in fully established genre territory here. And like we are kind of like branching off from other genres. Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I'm just like very, very quickly scanning the uh, the Wikipedia page for rock music to see if they have like a <laughs> to see if they have uh, like a like a date for when the the term was. And yeah, I mean, it, there's I mean, just looking at this, it's like late 40s is when it starts to become its thing, but it's not until like the mid to late 50s that it really separates itself commercially. So like at this point, mm. it would make sense that like it would still be under the broad category of like. I don't know what you, you know, what would people call it at the time, like race records or something race like records. that, right? Yeah. Um, like it would make sense that they would be lumped together if only for that. But yeah, I do know that like, I mean, it's extremely segregated. at the time. Right. And yeah. so many musicians, like black musicians, like who became famous in like the 50s and 60s and before, like their inflection point for starting off with music is church. And yeah. so like from like black church music, there is this huge... Uh, you know, river of like different genres that come out of it. And I jazz doesn't like explicit, like solely have its root in that, but like jazz is clearly like in interweaving a lot of these things together, um, mm -hmm. including rock music, I guess. Um, Michael, did you have any specific performances that you liked? I don't know if you, have um, to I said uh, Thelonious Monk earlier, which is really cool. And then Chico Hamilton, that I, that, I, I think Chico Hamilton was my favorite uh, performance. That was cool. And it's also like maybe the most like future focused because yeah, uh, Andrew, I'm with you is. that like 60s, 70s jazz is kind of like mostly where I listen to. Um, mm -hmm. And that one felt kind of like where jazz would go um, in some ways. And I, I really liked that. You said you did not like the Anita O'Day performance. I thought she was the weakest. Um, I, I don't know. I it was it's not that she was bad, but if I had to single out one that like I was like okay that's just fine. That's I fun. thought that that was fascinating. Um, I really enjoyed watching. Like I was resistant to it at first because it was like scatting? oh this is. Are you I mean, not, I don't even know if I was resistant by the time I had gotten to the scatting because it kind of won me over early on. But I think I originally I was like. Okay, this is kind of like corny, like almost barbershoppy vocal jazz music um, that I am don't really find particularly thrilling. But like, it was specifically the way that it was filmed that that made it interesting to me. Like, it's it's almost entirely the same thing they did in the first uh, performance, where it's like mostly just a prof an unbroken profile on her while she's singing. And like, I was fascinated by like seeing the way in which her like face moved and like she kind of like moved her neck and her mouth and stuff to like kind of create these different like crafted sounds with each um, word. It's very physical, um, yeah. Yeah, like I, I had never really um, considered just how physical of, a, of an act like 
vocal jazz is like so much more than, yeah. than vocal pop music or vocal rock music. I do think also like, you know, as much as I said earlier that like, maybe this is like a little bit of a buttoned up version of jazz to be presented to people who are less familiar with it or view it as scary. Like it really does capture how physical a lot of jazz music is like, you mm -hmm. know, nowadays jazz music has this kind of like NPR, like, you know, oh, I'm sitting in my study, just listening to jazz sort of reputation. And like, surely like jazz has like a place there as well. But, uh, when you watch jazz performances, there's just something uh, so unbelievably raw about it. You know, even if it's just like, you know, fancy pants, you know, even if you still just register it as just like fancy pants, like piano music or whatever, um, just watching these people like sweat and just wow. like lose their minds, like making this music like is really compelling. At the end of that Chico Hamilton performance, after he's been just like, doing a continuous drum roll on like at different uh, rhythms for like minutes. Um, I'm just like, is this guy okay? That seems so <laughs> exhausting. <laughs> yeah. It's unbelievably exhausting. I'm sure. Gosh. Yeah, um, since, as... we're, since we're, uh, since this is kind of the kickoff movie. I, I figure we should kind of go into a little, and we can bring up examples from this, but I think this is a good time to kind of define I guess what what are to us what is a concert movie and kind of how is it you know the, the New York Times review for this is interesting because they're like it's not cinematic it's very artsy and pretentious mm. um, so like what I guess what makes a good a good concert film and like I guess what are we kind of what's our goal for the series and exploring that okay so I, when you go to a concert at a big stadium like a stadium where nobody's really close enough to actually see the stage you're usually treated with big jumbotron screens mm -hmm. that are just kind of giving you coverage of the concert from, you know, varying angles um, that are not particularly like artfully considered. It's just coverage, right? We're, we're, we're editing, we're cutting back and forth at a fairly regular pace <laughs> um, just to kind of keep things interesting. Um, I feel like a concert film is not that. And I feel like, there are a lot of lazy concert films that are that basically like I love the Taylor Swift reputation concert film, but it is basically that. Right. Um, yeah. I think a, I mean, I like it because I like the music and I, you know, think it's cool to see her perform it, but it like, that is not, you know, lighting up all my like cinema synapses in my brain. Right. Um, I think a great concert film is one where like they're, they're finding the angles and like picking the angles purposefully. Like when we eventually get to Beyonce's uh, homecoming, like that is a movie that finds all the angles. <laughs> it's so good. It's uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean like being sort of conscious of and, and considerate of what film can add as a medium is like what I think makes a concert film, a good concert film. Well, not just, you know, throwing the, doing like a PBS special where you like yeah. throw performers up on stage and just have the camera right there, you know, mm -hmm. like engage, you know, I think it'll be interesting to have the conversation during stop making sense, but like, mm -hmm. the, like the audience engagement into, into things like how, how to best capture that, you know, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, I'm thinking it also in like that respect, like comedy, like comedy specials and like yeah. how they utilize audience members occasionally, or, you know, where they'll like have a joke and you'll cut to just somebody laughing, um, just to yeah. verify what you're supposed to do during this program. Um, but also just like, I think you have to kind of get into the cinematic technique of like we were talking about earlier with the editing, like you should feel the music through the visuals as much yeah. as it's not, a, again, it's not about them just playing in front of the screen. It's, you should feel like it reverberating through the film. Concept. Yeah. Those, um, like the aerial shots of the boats and like they're using them during these like soaring high moments of the jazz solos. Um, and they're kind of like capturing the, like the feeling of that sound visually. Um, really important. I think, okay. I think for me, like, it's maybe a little bit more nebulous, like what a good concert film is, but it has to be something where it make it. Let's see, how do I want to put this? Like, 
So I can listen to live music on my headphones, like a live mm-hmm. album or something like that. And then I can watch a concert film and it has to leave me with feeling like I've experienced something more than simply having seen visuals to the live album. Like yeah. there has to be something, something captured by the film itself that uh, contributes to the feeling that the music brings, not just simply illustrates the music, but like contributes to it. Like when I think of stop making sense, like I had listened to that music, for a long time before I actually saw the documentary because my dad is a big Talking Heads fan. So like he would play the album that was live music. And so I knew the music, but then watching the documentary wasn't just like, oh, so now I know like some of the stuff that was, they were doing at the time. I wasn't just like, the documentary does more than just show me what was happening while that music was playing. The documentary makes me feel the music in a different way right. by having watched it. The yeah, documentary, like, is the art um, in, in the case of Stop Making Sense, I think. Yeah, well, but it is the art, um, but it's the art that is, like, intertwined with the music, right? Like, because yeah. there can be something like, um, uh, I'm trying to think of an example, like, but there, there are examples of movies that incorporate live music, but the live music isn't the focus, Um or the music is kind of incidental. Like um, the movie Give Me Shelter, which I think is really good, it walks right up to the edge of doing that, I think, because it mm-hmm. like keeps intercutting with the stones the next day, I guess they're reflecting over it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's like kind of a distancing effect. Um, and I'm curious if Wood- what Woodstock does, because Woodstock is like very long. And I'm, I imagine like there's a lot of downtime in that documentary, maybe mm-hmm. not, but. Um, at any rate, like there are definitely documentaries that are about live music, but that the music itself doesn't feel like it is what the documentary is contributing to. Um, mm. It's got to be like the documentary's artistic push has to be like a collaborator with the music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it makes sense. And so that's why it was funny to read the New York Times review, which is like the antithesis of that, like that, that movies pretty much our movies are just like these moving images in front of you. And it, it you know, it kind of also just, um, uh, you know, expresses like the, the very early interpretation of movies that they were, they were just supposed to be kind of like moving images in front of you. And that mm-hmm. as they evolve similar to jazz, like there is like this kind of way that they're able to, um, expand and adapt and, um, find influences from other places you know it's less of a stage production anymore and it's more of finding ways to infuse like the 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 you know the vibrations of the music in you know something that's on a movie screen mm-hmm. for sure well, this is a good one i i i think um i had never heard of this movie before this yeah. uh this series and i'm glad i watched it because it is really good it's a Absolutely. great time yeah. Also, can we just like we need to appreciate the lineup at this 1958 jazz uh, <laughs> jazz festival, which has got to be like one of the best lineups of all time. So in a, this is in addition to the people who appear in the film. Uh, Duke Ellington was there. Miles Davis was there. Dave Brubeck's quartet was Dave there. Dave Brubeck was there. Yeah. Oh man. Um, was Bill Evans there? I think Bill Evans was probably with Miles Davis at the time. Um, oh shit. Probably like isn't that the band? Wasn't um, Miles Davis's band in the late fifties like Coltrane, Bill Evans? It was. Uh, yeah. There's like a couple of Herbie Hancock maybe was playing with them too, like something wild like that. Um, but uh, Ray Charles uh, was was here. Um, this is no anyway, shade on our Max on Roach. Our... I could keep going down this list, but it is like one of the most <laughs> incredible festivals. This is no shade on any Rhode Island listeners that we have, but why the hell did Rhode Island <laughs> this baller ass festival lineup? I mean, why does Knoxville, Tennessee have a baller ass avant garde music true. festival every That's year? That's true. You know? That's true. Sometimes you're just blessed to live in a mid sized town um, where weird shit like that happens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, any, any final thoughts on jazz on a summer's day before we, we wrap up? 
Um, I like it a little bit less as it approaches the end, um, when it spends less time kind of wandering off and, and seeing what's happening in other parts of the festival. Uh, but I guess that's also because it becomes more like vocal jazz heavy because we're getting to the headliners who are like closer to pop music. Mm. Um, and I, I tend to prefer instrumental jazz. But like in the, the early going to this movie, I was like, this is a four and a half star movie. This is maybe even a five star movie. And then I kind of um, waned on it a little bit uh, by the end. So on that downer note. It is still great. <laughs> um, well, I believe Criterion just put out a release of it. So if you're looking for it, it's there. Um, oh, was it Criterion? Criterion just did a, just did a, like a edition of it for Blu-ray. Ooh, um, but really? Kino Lorber also owns the distribution. So if you go to Kino Lorber's site, you can find it there um, as well. But anyway, but that will wrap up this episode of Cinematary. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinematary on Twitter and Instagram at handle at Cinematary. We'll, we're, we will be reporting all our, our fun stuff from Toronto this coming week. Mm -hmm. Um and then you can find us on Letterboxd, letterboxd.com slash cinematary, where we list the movies that we talked about in this episode. If you'd like to support the show, head over to patreon.com slash cinematary. If you'd like to give us a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars, whatever you want to give. And if you just want to do a month, doesn't matter. Just if you would like to support the show in some way, um, it is available there. But thank you to our patrons, Cam, Chad Newsom, Corey Willingham, Candace Sisson, Ron Hayes, Teresa Marsathi. Titus Arthur and Tyler Chandler, thank you so much for your patronage. Next week, we're going to be continuing our concert movie series with 1970s Woodstock. So pray for me having to watch this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Are we wow. doing any sort of uh, audio or video diaries throughout TIFF, Zach? Um, we can if we want. We'll see how we feel. I mean, I'll have yeah. I'll be running the Twitter and Instagram, and have, we'll have some stuff. I can I can like meet up with Andrew and have him dictate to me how he feels about things and tweet. Well, it. hey, I'm gonna be back on Twitter specifically through the Cinematary Twitter. Okay. I'm just gonna tweet and like put an A at the end or something. Um, okay. So people who've been missing me on Twitter, if you exist, uh, I'm, I'm I'm thinking I'm back. <laughs> That's how you should introduce yourself on Thursday. Um, we'll do. <laughs> All right, we'll be looking for we'll have a, a tiff diary next week and the week after. So be looking for that. Until then, thank y'all for listening. <laughs>